0: Amen. We are back in Romans chapter 5, this evening focusing on verses 3 through 5. You'll find that on page 1119 of your Pew Bible. And as always, we encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open that you might read along as we read and study this passage together. We have begun, of course, our march through what is really the pinnacle of the Book of Romans, chapters 5 through 8. There is no doubt that as we continue studying these chapters, we'll come to see that these are agreed by so many, the most important truths that we need to know as believers to understand and, of course, to believe. For here, the whole of the Christian life is set before us. From the perspective of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are only at the very beginning of this section in chapter 5. And we've already been blessed, greatly blessed, as we've come to understand what these verses teach us. Look at them again with me, verses 1 and 2. Paul is reminding his readers that they are indeed already justified by faith. And that leads to many, several different benefits and blessings. He notes those benefits very clearly as he uh, reminds them of their position now in Jesus Christ. The first, of course, is that we have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over, the battle is done, the armor's the armor is removed and God no longer treats us as his enemies as we were prior to what Christ has done for us. Then he says we not only have peace with God, but we have this access by faith into this grace of justification wherein we stand. This is Paul's way of saying that we now have access, full and bold, free access into the presence of the Father. He has come to bring us to the Father. And this tells us that because we have been justified by faith, we now have presently this access into the presence of God. But then he adds to that even more. We also have the joy or the rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. I said to Pastor Fisher this morning outside as we left the sanctuary after he preached from 1st Timothy chapter 6 that it's amazing how much overlap there is in these sermons between 1st Timothy and the book of Romans this glory of God of course is the beatific vision ultimately it is the vision of God in his glory as we will behold him on that day we now because we are justified we now rejoice in the hope the sure hope and confidence that we will indeed be in the presence of God and behold his glory. We will see him as he is. What a wonder and joy already the, the Apostle Paul has told us regarding our salvation and the benefits and privileges we have as those who are now in Christ and have come to enjoy this salvation which is ours presently now. That's so important to emphasize. This is what is ours right now, presently. It's our present possession, only to be fully realized when Christ returns again. Does this not cause you and me to stand in wonder and amazement at what God has done for us, sinners that we are, what he has done for us in Christ? Isaac Watts so rightly said, alas, And did my savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? But I do love the way Paul builds one upon another as he adds to these three great benefits, yet another one in verses three through five, truths that I think take us even to greater heights, to places where our minds and hearts cannot attain apart from the grace of God. He writes in verse 3, not only that. Not only do we enjoy these things, he says, but there's more. More, Paul, there's more for us who are in the beginning undeserving and remain undeserving. And yet there is more that Paul says is ours because we have been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what these verses tell us. And so I'll ask you to stand as we come Again to this passage. I'll read only verses one through five. And just by a reminder, and I know we've said this long ago, but some of you may wonder, why is it that we do this? Why do we sing a hymn? Usually in the morning, we have you stand, then we have you sit and stand again. It is actually intentional. It's intentional because we want what we do now in the hearing of God's word preached, to set apart this time intentionally and to have us to stand, not simply to remain standing, but to stand as we hear God's word read. And so, hear these words Romans chapter 5, just verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, how we rejoice in these great truths of which we have just read. Now bless your word, not only read, but now preach to the hearts and minds, to the lives of all of those here gathered, those who listen Uh, At a distance, we pray that your mercy would attend all that we do now and that we, your people, would be reminded of those things which are ours to know even now in the midst of this fallen and broken world. We give you thanks and we praise you for these great benefits that are ours in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A truism, you've heard that phrase before, a truism is something that is said that is just obviously true. It needs no explanation. It doesn't really add anything to the discussion. It's just simply a statement that is obviously true to everyone. And so a truism regarding our text tonight would be this, suffering, suffering is part of the human condition. Suffering is part of the human condition. As Christians, we know that that is obviously true, both theologically and experientially. Theologically, we remember what our Lord said to us, or to our first parents, Adam and Eve, on the day that they sinned and the world and life forever changed. To the woman, it will be pain that you will have in bringing forth children. I will multiply your pain in childbirth, To the man, life will be hard in everything that you do until you return to the dust from which you were taken. These, he told them, were the consequences of the fall, and they are experienced by every human being who has or will live in this world. That is what the Bible says. There will be suffering and pain for every human being who has ever lived. But we also know this experientially in our own lives. Suffering in its multifaceted expressions, that means there are all kinds of suffering. We don't need to go through the list of all of them. We all understand and know what suffering and what forms they take. For all people will be the common experience of humanity. And being a Christian does not exempt us from suffering. Sometimes very deep and seemingly endless suffering is also ours as those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Let the preachers of health, wealth and prosperity gospel pay attention, read their Bibles and see that this is the common experience of Christian and non-Christian alike. The world has two main ways it seems that it deals with the reality of suffering. The first way is simply to pretend it doesn't exist, to ignore it, to avoid it at all costs and instead just simply pursue all kinds of pleasure so that you over, uh, you pursue pleasure instead of the reality of suffering. The second is to face it head on, to take your lumps and to move on. It's the response of what commentators note would be the stoic response. Look it in the face, stare it down, all while you put on a smiling face. Neither of those responses are adequate, of course. It doesn't help anybody to do those things. It doesn't end suffering nor the impact of suffering on anyone's life. The Bible, especially the New Testament, stands apart from these responses, which are the responses of the world in which we live and the responses as well of all the world's religions that speak of suffering very differently. Only the Bible has a rich and deep understanding of human suffering, a theology of suffering that is well developed and well worked out. And that understanding has been the experience of all true followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, from the Apostle Paul through countless martyrs in church history, down to our own day. It's in these verses that we begin to see that theology of suffering, how God views suffering from his perspective in our lives and how we ought to know it and to view it as well. And so our purpose tonight is to build upon what we've already seen and to see another benefit, another benefit of being justified by faith through Jesus Christ. That is found in these verses, not only that he says, but here, the first point is the proposition that he sets before us. The proposition is that we, as those justified by faith through Jesus Christ, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. We glory, some versions have, in our sufferings. In fact, the word that Paul uses in this verse regarding rejoicing is the same word he uses earlier in chapter 3 and verse 27 where he talks about boasting in our own works as being excluded, that we have no place before God to boast in our works. That's the word. It's the same word. It's boasting. So, Paul here could very well be saying that we have a reason to boast in our sufferings, which makes it all the more difficult to understand. And besides that, this idea of suffering comes from the Greek word which means pressure. So think of pressure being pressed down. Paul says we rejoice, we boast in the things which press us down like grapes are pressed in a wine press until the juice of the grape comes forth to make the wine. That's the picture Paul paints for us here. We boast, we glory, we rejoice in those things that press us down. It's a strange statement. It's a bold statement. One of the boldest we find in the Bible. And yet, and yet it is not unusual. It's not an unusual statement in the Bible. We see similar statements all throughout the New Testament in James chapter one, for instance, A very similar idea that James brings before his readers. Count it all joy, he says, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, all different kinds of trials of suffering, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." You may remember in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles were arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus. They were commanded by the authorities to no longer preach in or by that name. By his grace, the apostles declared that they would not obey the command of men because they must obey God rather than men. You remember Gamaliel, one of the Pharisees, spoke during that very gathering and calmed the leaders down so that they would not kill these men. He was used by God to protect them. And at the end of that account, we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and 41, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing, it says, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Paul speaks of that honor which he believed he possessed he had. When he writes to the Colossian believers in chapter one of that letter, now he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And who can forget Paul and Silas, again, after being beaten, thrown into jail, where do we find them at midnight, but rejoicing and singing in the presence of God, rejoicing as it were in the midst of their suffering for the sake of Christ. This idea, this proposition that Paul sets before us, though it sounds strange to our ears, is not strange to the rest of the Bible, to the whole of the New Testament and Old Testament alike. We do rejoice, we glory, we boast in our sufferings, and we do so for good reason. And that's where Paul takes us from the proposition to the pattern that he sets before us. The second point is this idea of the pattern he lays down here. Dr. Boyce in his commentary on Romans argues that every word in this great text is important and I wholeheartedly agree. You see the importance of the word here as he says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing he says, we know something. That's why we rejoice because we know something. We possess a knowledge of something, something that has been revealed to us Dr. Boyce goes on to say, Christians rejoice in suffering because of what they know about it. They know something about suffering that they didn't know before. But now in Christ, as those justified by faith through Jesus Christ, they now know something about suffering. And so follow with me what it is that we know. What it is, I would say tonight, that we must know. As followers of Jesus Christ, the first is this. We know that suffering produces endurance. Suffering, the pressing down of our lives through the providences that God brings, produces in us an endurance, a steadfastness, a long suffering, a patience. That's what suffering does for us. It produces the ability for us to endure and to persevere in the midst of that suffering by the grace of God. Matthew Henry says this, That which worketh patience is a matter for joy for followers of Jesus. For patience does us more good than tribulation can do us hurt. Tribulation in itself worketh impatience. That is apart from what we know about what is ours in Christ. Tribulation simply worketh impatience in us. But as it is sanctified, blessed by God to the saints, it worketh in us a patience and an endurance, a long-suffering, Paul writes. But this endurance and long-suffering further, he says, produces in us character. Some versions have the word experience. The experience of a tested character is what is meant there. Character means a testing or trial of who we are. And nothing does that better than suffering, producing patience, producing character within us. We are different people because of what we suffer and endure by the grace of God. Our character is changing. Who we are changes from within. Again, Matthew Henry is so helpful in these verses. It works an experience of ourselves. It is by tribulation that we make an experiment of our own sincerity. And therefore, such tribulations are called trials. Trials. It works in us an approbation, as he is approved that he has passed the test. It is a testing of our character. Thus, Job's tribulation wrought patience, and that patience produced an approbation and approval that still he holds fast his integrity. Job is probably the greatest example of this uh, pattern that the Lord has set down for us here. A man who suffered greatly, who endured and persevered, who did not curse God through it all, whose character was changed as he went through what he endured under the hand of God. And so Paul says that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces a tested character and character produces a hope, a hope that does not put us to shame. Now, it's not surprising that we have the word hope both in verse 2 and verse 4. And many commentators simply see Paul here as repeating himself. That at the end of this process of patience and long-suffering producing character and character-producing hope, he's simply saying the same thing as he said in verse 2. But I agree with those who see the teaching and words of Thomas Chalmers Uh, one of the great preachers of old, who said that these really are different types of hope, as it were. Thomas Chalmers said that the first is different than the second. In verse 2, it speaks of a hope which is ours by the promise of God. That is, because we are justified by faith, we have this hope of the glory of God. That's a promise that is held out to us into which or or in which we place our faith, we believe God and what he promises, that we will see the glory of God one day. But this in verse 4 speaks of the same kind of hope, but what we learn now here by experience, by experience. That is God speaking through that suffering which produces endurance and the endurance which produces character. We experience in this change of our character. We experience the renewal of this hope that we will indeed and that hope rises in us that we will indeed see the glory of God. And that will not, he says, disappoint us. We will have what God has promised and so the two are working together, one by promise, one by our experience of God working in our lives. Again, another commentator, though we are counted as the off-scouring of all things, Paul says that to the Corinthians, and we are trodden underfoot as the mire in the streets, yet having hope of glory, we are not ashamed of these sufferings. It is in a good cause for a good master and in good hope. And therefore, we are not ashamed. We will never think ourselves disparaged by sufferings that are likely to end so well. You see, the sufferings lead to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul will say that later in chapter 8. These sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And so this experience of what God is doing through suffering, producing endurance, endurance character and character hope, this will never put us to shame. Not so many years ago, I think it was just a few, I can't remember when, but the great Christian songwriter, Laura Story, she's written a number of wonderful songs expressed this idea of suffering and what God's purpose is so beautifully in a song written. When I remember that one of our own members sang for us at one of our music events here at the church, singing, I believe, out of her own experience and the experience of others that she knew. You remember this, these words, we pray for blessings, we pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing and for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear each spoken need, yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know that you're near and what if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? When friends betray us and when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not, this is not our home. It is not our home." I think that captures very well what the full picture of what Paul is saying here of this pattern that he sets down for us as followers of Jesus Christ. For we are rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, of being with him, of seeing him. And in our suffering, that hope grows and that hope will not be disappointed. It will never point to put us to shame. I also heard a story this week that captures these truths well. It's just a true story from what I heard. It was on the radio, so I tried to capture it as I uh, parked my car and wrote it down. It was about a mother who was born blind and her interaction with her son. Her son often wondered why his mother was blind and suffered so. He would often tell her that he was praying that God would heal her blindness, and he believed that God would heal her. But she assured him that one day God would heal her blindness in heaven and that we should look to that day with great joy. One day the mother and the son were playing a game together. The game had many pieces and after some time it became obviously frustrating for the mother because so many of those small pieces she was knocking them over accidentally. And so the mother asked her son if they might play another game that would be easier for her to play. The boy agreed and began putting the pieces of the game away quietly. The mother sensed that something was wrong. Maybe the boy was quiet because he really wanted to play that game. And so she asked if everything was okay. And the boy answered, You know, Mom, I don't think the Lord is going to heal your blindness. This surprised the mother because her son had always believed that God would heal her. Why do you say that, son? To which the young boy answered, if God were to heal you, mom, then you might begin to love this world too much instead of heaven, and heaven is so much better. That's the hope that God is working in us, the testing of our character, producing a hope that will not disappoint. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians in second Corinthians chapter four. We, we don't lose heart then in the midst of our sufferings is the context. Paul ends this section, this pattern after this uh, proposition with a possession that he says we possess as well, what we have already now. And notice the language. It it sort of just builds on the hope that will not be put to shame. And he says, because, that is the hope won't be put to shame, which is because of this pattern based on this proposition, because God's love, he says, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Here is clearly another comfort, one that speaks to what we come to experience in the very midst of our suffering. We come to know his love more certainly. We come to know his love more certainly. John Calvin writing, So helpfully on this point says this, seeing all things must serve the will of our creator who according to his fatherly favor towards us overrules all the trials of the cross for our salvation. This knowledge of divine love is instilled into our hearts by the spirit of God for the good things which God has prepared for his servants are hid from the ears and eyes and the minds of men. And the spirit alone is he who can reveal them. The word diffused here, which is as he translated it, this word poured out or diffused, is very emphatic, he says. For it means that the revelation of divine love towards us is so abounding that it fills our hearts And being thus spread through every part of our hearts, it not only mitigates sorrow in adversities, but also like a sweet seasoning, it renders tribulations to be loved by us. We rejoice, glory, we boast in our sufferings, because it's through our sufferings, Paul says, that we come to know how deeply God loves us. And I think that is the focus here. It's God's love toward us, which is being poured out into our hearts. I think that's true in the context of the verses preceding it. I think it becomes abundantly true in the verses that we'll study next week that come afterwards. It is God's love to us that is in view here. But make no mistake about it, as one writer says, his love to us stirs our love to him. And so it is a pouring out of his love to us through the Holy Spirit. Every time I read that word and hear that word, I think of the woman in Luke chapter 7. Remember, as she came to Jesus while he was sitting in uh, Simon's house, and Simon had done nothing to welcome Jesus. And yet, unbeknownst to those in the room, she sneaks in and comes and sits and kneels before the feet of Jesus. And she breaks a very expensive alabaster jar filled with perfume that no doubt would have filled the room with with its smell. She anointed Jesus, not only with this lavish gift, but also with her tears. In the same way, Paul speaks here of love, the love of God for us being poured out into our hearts By the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given as a down payment of our inheritance. He is the one who works within us. This awareness of His love, He seals us in this love. Another writer or commentator I was reading this week says that this is how we explain how the martyrs who have suffered for Christ, martyrs who died horrific deaths, who stood and were bound and tied Uh, to bundles of sticks as they were burned at the stake, Uh, women who were hoisted up on poles and put into the midst of the sea, who died for Christ, so many others cast into the arena with lions. How is it that they could have so willingly and even joyfully entered into those times of suffering, suffering that you and I have never known or experienced to this point? It is this reason, he says, at that very moment as they rejoiced in the midst of their suffering, which produced this patience, which produced this endurance, uh, which produced this character and this hope. In that moment, he says, the love of God was poured into their hearts so that they knew in the midst of their suffering... God loved them. And that was enough for them to suffer with joy for the sake of Christ. Well, two things as we conclude this study tonight, as we step back from what Paul is reminding us here, what it is that we must know about suffering. The first is simply this. This is only speaking to Christians. Paul makes it clear this is only for the one justified by faith through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is only the Christian who knows this way of life, this pattern for living in a fallen world. Yes, admittedly, we sometimes grumble, don't we? If you're like me, you do, you grumble, you complain at the suffering God is pleased to bring into your life. We often do that and yet yet we are often As we see these things, we're often those whom God shows great mercy to and brings us around in our understanding. Though at times we can be like the complaining people in the wilderness, grumbling and blaming God for the bad things that happen to us. As Christians, we know something because God's word tells us, we know what God's purpose is. We know that suffering that we experience in this life comes always through the hands of a loving, gracious, and justifying Father in heaven. He has justified us. He will sanctify us. He is transforming me and you into what he wants us to be, like his own dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not true for the one who is outside of Christ, who does not know him by faith, For you, if that describes you tonight, you are suffering and your suffering has no meaning or purpose. It is merely the random will of a cruel universe or the twisted cruelty of a wicked deity who enjoys toying with his creatures. Suffering for you is meaningless. It serves no purpose. It is to be avoided by all costs, but it can't be avoided. It can't be ignored ultimately. The only way suffering can make any sense is to understand it through the life and death and resurrection of the one whose name is the suffering servant, even Jesus Christ. And that suffering servant, Jesus, is the one who cries out to all, come to me, all who are weak, who are heavy laden, who are burdened by the sufferings and the reality of this fallen world, and I will give you rest. Only He can do that. Only He can redeem suffering that we endure and use it to make us more like Himself. And so this is only for believers. If you're not a believer tonight, you need to first find your hope and your salvation in Jesus Christ, who has come to deliver all who will look to Him in faith. But secondly, we ask this question, what what then is the purpose of it all? What is the purpose of it all? Clearly stated, what is the purpose? We shall see that even in the book of Romans, there is a great theology of suffering, but it begins here. Have you ever asked these questions in your life? What is the meaning of my suffering? What does God intend for me to learn? Does my suffering mean anything at all to God? Does he even care that I'm going through this? Where is God in all of this pain? According to Job, who suffered more perhaps than anyone, he came to know what the meaning and purpose was as he was tested and tried. He asked those questions, he wrote about them, or he spoke them, I should say, in the book that bears his name. In Job 23 verse 10, behold, he says, I go forward, but he, God, is not there. I go backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But, he says, he, God, knows the way that I take. He knows the path that I'm walking on. When he has tried me, he says, I shall come out as gold. Job spoke perhaps beyond his understanding when he spoke those words. Peter more clearly speaks of it in that first letter that we read earlier, the first chapter of that letter, where he talks about the great blessing that suffering brings to our lives. Peter writes, in this salvation you rejoice, though now for just a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials or kinds of suffering so that the tested genuineness of your faith, much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the next time you are in the midst of deep, difficult, dark suffering, please go back, read these verses and be reminded of that which you already know now by faith in God. That he is working something in you through it all to make you more like Jesus. That is his sole purpose in your life and in mine to make us like Christ. And he uses suffering to do that, suffering in which we rejoice, as he says here, knowing that that suffering is going to produce in us a perseverance and endurance, that endurance, a character making us tested, who passed the test, and that character producing a hope which will never disappoint because in the midst of our suffering, we are reminded of how greatly God loves us and has shed that love abroad in our hearts. As we come to this table tonight, it is good for us to remember what we so often say, the servant is no greater than his master. For we are called each one of us as followers of Christ to walk in his steps, not our own, but his. And so let us remember then the pattern and way of Christ who suffered for us. And by that suffering learned obedience for in the days of his flesh, the writer to Hebrews says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Those are signs of suffering to him, his father, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Let us pray. Father, you have called us to a path and to live a pattern of life that is patterned after Christ. And so as we come to this table, being reminded of all that he suffered for our sake, we would pray that you would so work in us and that your love would be shed abroad so much in our own hearts that we too would rejoice, glory, boast in our sufferings. For in doing so, we model our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was willing to suffer even the death upon the cross so that we might be brought to the Father. We thank you and praise you for this great hope that you have given to us and pray your blessing now upon all that we do in this meal. In Jesus' name, amen.